0: All right, so with those words, I want to unpack those. I want you to be ready for these words. They're going to show up in the passage today. And so I want you to be ready to, um, to hear them, to engage with them. The first word is the word consolation. Um, the word consolation, many of you, especially the guys, are probably thinking, well, that must come from the root word console, meaning the thing in the front of your car that has all the dials and meters on it, right? Or the computer console, that thing. That must be what you're referencing, um, and you would be wrong. That's not at all what the word is actually. That, that comes from the consolidation of a whole bunch of features into one area. That's actually where that comes from, right? Um, no, console is not a control surface. Um, to console is, to, is, is a, to a consolation. A consolation, the noun, is something that causes us to feel better after we felt bad. Something that helps us feel better after a grief was induced, a pain was induced, a hurt, um, a depression, a discouragement, a despair, and a consolation is a thing that allows us to experience a different reality. Technically, you guys know I love uh, etymology of words, like where the word comes from. And so you probably spotted already in our audience, the word console has that prefix con or com or con, which means with and so, there you go, console with, and the, the word where we get the word solace means smooth. So, the idea is, the, the picture is that a, a, a storm waters, and now now something has come along and smoothed them out. The jagged edges, the sharp pieces of a stone have been smoothed. The painful parts have been smoothed out. It's a difference between swallowing an aspirin and swallowing a pine cone, right? One of those is consoling, the other one is less so. So that is a, like this, this is the picture you're, that we're talking about, with soothing or with smoothing, okay, something that, that does that. So the other word is redemption. We're going to run into the word redemption today. Um, and not the only time in our study of Luke. To redeem something, again, literally means to buy something. Back, re, back, deem, buy, to buy back, Um, uh, to buy again, to gain possession of something for a price. The idea being that in doing so, you actually increase its value. So you're supposed to picture like an artist who had a painting stolen from them, or a painting bought from them, or someone sold it out from under them, and then later they come back and say, that's my painting, I'm now buying it back at the price, whatever price I have to pay, that's the price I will pay to redeem it. Some of you are old enough, like I am, to remember gathering cans or bottles Old enough, plus poor enough, as a child to remember gathering cans and bottles, walking down the street and 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 what did you do with them? you redeemed them that's what it said redeem, re, the redemption value is often printed on a bottle like or. Um, or the right. So, Jesus has been born, where we're picking up the account. Jesus has been born. The family is still in Bethlehem. As I read through this, somebody in the back is going to want to raise their hand and go like, where are the wise men? And the answer is, we don't know exactly where this fits, where the wise men fit in this story. Did... Very likely Luke and Matthew were in communication. We shouldn't imagine like they're just totally never met each other, have no idea who they were. It seems like their Gospels came out at about the same time. And so they may have easily been in communication with each other and with other of the same people. And you might should just picture... Luke sitting across the table from Matthew, and they're sipping coffee, and one of them's like, okay, do you want to do the wise men, or do you want me to do the wise men? Which one of us is going to do the wise? I'll tell you what, I'll do the shepherds, you do the wise men. Fair enough? Okay, good. Well, and that, maybe that's exactly what you're supposed to picture. Certainly, John, who wrote after both of them, doesn't mention either. And so, maybe that's because John's like, they, listen, they nailed it. They nailed it. No reason for me to write it again. So, One of the things we're going to talk about as we go through a gospel, anytime you read through a gospel, is to recognize every sentence is prime real estate. Nothing is going to be wasted. If it's there, it's there for a reason, because tons of stuff is not there. Paul talked about, um, when he did the overview of Luke, he talked about, he asked the question, is this a biography? Because in a biography, you start with the birth of the character, typically, and then you go through their life all the way to the point of their death. Well, here you have the birth of the character, and then he's 30, and his ministry begins. it's really a ministry biography. We get well, literally Luke is the only one who even gives us a single account of something that happens after about age two. So that's where we are. Jesus is, is born, the family is still in Bethlehem, in verse 21, chapter two, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called. Jesus, Yeshua, the name given, part of the inheritance of Almighty God. Did Jesus need to be circumcised? No, he didn't. How fascinating that he was, though. Isn't that interesting? We're going to run into that a lot. Things that Jesus didn't need, but he did. Last night, Ginger and I were watching the third episode of the third season uh, of The Chosen, Um, and this—it's funny because this actually is a spoiler alert. I like joking about The Chosen and saying like "spoiler alert" because. Hopefully you've read it, Um, uh, but in this case it is a spoiler alert because this isn't in the Bible, which of course means it's controversial. That they that they always I mean talk about landmines, but and so in this there's a situation where Jesus goes toe to toe with the Rabbi, and the apex of the moment is when Jesus gets in the guy's face and says, "I am the law of Moses." Now, again, we could debate whether that's what Jesus actually would have said, since it's not directly in Scripture. But here's what I know to be true. There is no law of Moses outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we're going to talk about his relationship to the law of Moses here in a minute. So did he need to, be, to need to be circumcised in order to be considered a child of God, a member of God's inheritance? No, he's the firstborn begotten son. He inherits everything, right? He's the inheritor. So 33 days later, we just immediately jump, 33 days, verse 22, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you want to do some extra research, these original Levitical commands um, for purification are found in Leviticus 12. 12. Um, you can go look that up if you're interested in that, but the, but Luke here really unpacks it accurately. There's two or three things going on simultaneously here. Um, by the way, this event, the presentation, the eight-day presentation of Jesus the first time, is actually celebrated on February 2nd. I'm not surprised, like that's uh, that, which is 40 days after. Excuse me, the presentation of him 40 days later because this is 40 days uh, apparently after December 25th. So and we're on the fourth. We're pretty close. So when the time came for this purification is what's being described here. So the purification is one rule that they follow, the purification of the baby and the mother, so that they're ceremonially considered clean after childbirth. That's one. Then there's also this special sacrifice for the firstborn child, right? Especially the firstborn son. So did Jesus, here's here's another question, did Jesus need to be Declared pure by the priests, no, of course not. Jesus is the embodiment of purity there's nothing there 's nothing about that that he needed. Did Jesus need to be claimed by the Father as a son through a ritual in the temple? Uh, no, no, he did not. He was the only begotten son of God. none of these things were necessary. How fascinating that they're being lived out. It seems like a lot of work given how much isn't here in the beginning of Luke that these accounts are here. Something special must be going on. This important real estate is going to this. Well, in Genesis 17, again, you can look it up later if you want to, is the original instruction to Abraham that on the eighth day, every male is to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham's offspring, the Jewish people. You are my people. You are my children. Here's how you will know by the sign of circumcision. And right in the middle, much later in Exodus, right in the middle of the instruction from God to Moses about the Passover feast, God throws in this little doozy. Exodus chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb (coughs) among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Now consider. Think of the context of when God is making this instruction. This context is right in the middle of the Passover instruction. Now what was the Passover again? We think of the Passover our instinct, because we learned about it watching movies, is that at the Passover, God is going to send this plague to wipe out all the children of Egypt, the firstborn children of Egypt. And the only way to be protected from this plague, to get to keep your children, was to put the blood of the lamb on the cross pieces. Now, again, as Christians, this isn't very subtle. We need to find a firstborn lamb. We talked about this last week. We need to find a firstborn lamb. We need to slaughter it. And we need to make sure its blood is spread across pieces, cross pieces on a door not too subtle for us, right? That sounds a little bit like Jesus. So, but at the time they're going, okay, that's what this is. But understand that's not exactly right. What happened was that God went through Egypt and claimed every firstborn. He claimed some through death. The ones who didn't have the mark of the blood on the door, he claimed through death. They died as he is giving the final defeat to Egypt and, most importantly, to Egypt's gods. The gods of Egypt are unable to protect even the firstborn from Yahweh. But notice, Yahweh did not leave the people of Israel with their firstborn sons either. He said, no, no, they're mine too. I'm not taking their lives today because I have something else in store for them. But just understand, every firstborn is mine. I will, I will, I've got something special in store. The 10th plague wasn't rescued. The children of the firstborn of the Hebrews weren't rescued for nothing. He rescued them in order to make an extra special claim on them for himself. They would later be man for man represented by the Levites. These are mine They're going to serve as I see fit. Now, notice, he claimed all the people of Israel. And then a special claim upon the firstborn. Firstborn had to be, in a sense, purchased back from God. Now, you're just borrowing them. This is a lease, not an own thing, right? You're leasing the child back from God. And any time that a woman had a child, there was a period of ceremonial uncleanness. And what she was supposed to do was go and sacrifice a lamb in order to represent the purification after that. However, as you're going to see in Leviticus 12, we're about to read this, Leviticus 12:18. if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Do you remember what she did? Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to the Lord, what is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons? There's probably only one way to interpret this correctly, and that is that Jesus' parents were poor. Now, maybe back in Nazareth, they could have afforded a lamb. But making the move to Bethlehem, living with family or friends, in and in a cave, whatever it is that they're living in now at this point, they don't have the finances to afford a lamb. They could probably barely get to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem, they have no money, and they take the poor option, the poverty-stricken option. How fascinating that not only Jesus came into the world as a baby, but he came into the world as the baby of a poverty-stricken family. That speaks volumes to us that Jesus came, when we, when we go through the experience that Jesus experienced and see this kind of thing, it's pretty shocking. Now, I also want to ask this. This is just a great teachable moment to me. <sighs> Do you ever feel like you only have two pigeons, two pigeons to give? Like, that's it. But God's like, go into the world, make disciples, baptize them. And you're like, I got two pigeons. That's what I got to give is two pigeons. I love the fact that we serve a God who says, all right, two pigeons then. God, this is all I've got to give. I, listen, I, I am super wealthy and I own all the things and I can give millions of dollars. And God says, good, do that. You give what you can afford. It's all mine. I bought you with a price. Give it. Use it to serve the kingdom. Whatever it is. Oh, all these talents that I have. I can. I can sing, and I can, and I can. Uh, I can operate equipment, and I can serve it. Oh, whatever it happens to me. I can teach. I can. I can clean like nobody's business. You. You just. These are my great skills, that God's got. God goes, good. Good. You know what? I'll take those. And sometimes we reach into our pockets and we go. I got. I got two pigeons. I got two pennies. And Jesus says, All right, then we'll do that then. Just amazing to me that we see God's grace hard woven even into the law like this. What a fascinating idea that Jesus' parents followed the law. Isn't that fascinating? In fact, many believe that Jesus followed the law of God, the law of Moses, spirit and letter. Perfectly, flawlessly. I am one of those people. I think Jesus followed the law exactly as it was intended with no error. The law was good. There's nothing wrong with the law, but it needed something. But I'm one of those people. Listen, James 2.10, Jesus' half-brother, wrote this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I think Jesus was guilty of none of it. I think he followed the law. It's controversial. You may not know that. That's a controversial stance. It's got to be defended. I, I really do think that. I think Jesus was innocent of the law of Moses, God's law given to his people. I think Jesus was innocent of it fully, unlike any other human who ever lived. <clears throat> so if the law, the Jesus, Jesus fulfilled, he didn't come to abolish it. The, the law didn't need destroying. It didn't need to be burned. It didn't need to be torn to pieces. It needed to be fulfilled. Someone needed to check all the boxes and get all the way to the end and have nailed it. Matthew five seventeen. Jesus says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. <clears throat> so on April 17th, I'm, I'm, I'm going to unpack this, this is how I understand this fulfillment. On April 17th, <clears throat> 1993, I proposed to Ginger. Now, when I proposed to Ginger, I was young, and I was poor, so I did that incredibly creative thing, where I kidnapped her teddy bear, and that's a ransom note. And she had to get—I gave her a little—a little camera, and she had to take pictures of herself at every location that had new clues. Okay, uh, no, no phones, boys and girls. A little camera, a little disposable camera. And so she went all around Nacogdoches going to all the pla- our first dates, our the special locations that meant something, while I went and set up to propose to her and tied a little ring on the back of the teddy bear's neck, and it was, it was adorable. So, but here's, here's what you need, and, and, and a little cheesy, let's be honest, um, uh, a little cringy. So, but I want you to hear that very quickly, very quickly after that event, I intentionally and almost immediately scheduled... To call off our betrothal. I scheduled to end our engagement. This was very strategic. I mean, cold-hearted. I planned on ending our engagement on December 30th of that same year. I know it sounds unkind, but I'll tell you, by December 30th, I was sick and tired of calling her my fiancé. So we scheduled a special event to cancel our engagement. I mean, we just put an end to it right then and there, right? We totally ended our engagement at that point. Why? Because the engagement was fulfilled. Now, was it meaningless? Was it bad? No, of course not. It had a purpose, and its purpose had been fulfilled. It had accomplished what it was meant. There's a lot of lessons I learned during our engagement that I still play out 30 years later in our marriage. But but here, that's the picture I think that Jesus is describing. It isn't that the law was bad. It isn't that the law, of course it was and It was given by God. It was brilliant. It is brilliant. If you study God's law, it is shocking how far ahead of its time it was. How honestly, there's a lot of laws we have today that, we, that we're real proud of, that their version was was meaningfully better meaningfully better whole other conversation you can listen to that on the reconstructed faith podcast it is it is wild to me there's a purpose in the law and the purpose has was fulfilled fulfilled completed by the person and life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ now now we're going to dive into one of the main themes of Luke the theme of the witness <laughs> we're going to meet a couple of brilliant witnesses fantastic witnesses Yes. And yes, this is one of our main themes. So who've been our witnesses so far, by the way, we've had several witnesses, people who have, who have, who have said in advance, this is who this is. We're making that proclamation so far in the book of Luke only. Who are some of our witnesses? What's that? Shepherds. Shepherds, Absolutely. We got the shepherds. Who else? Okay. A group of angels, a host of angels. Who else? There's a specific angel. Gabriel, right? Gabriel made that proclamation. Any others? Yep. The, the unborn baby John has already been a testifier. Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph. These have all been witnesses as to who Jesus is going to be. Now we have very special, two very special witnesses. The Orthodox Church considers these the last of the Old Testament prophets Pope Francis of the Catholic Church recently talked about the fact that they both seem to be, (laughs) one was for sure, senior citizens. Listen, I want to just take a second and comment on that. Please, senior citizens, do not cease to engage in ministry. Please. I totally agree with him. We cannot afford on this item. We cannot afford to have our eldest member ministers ever turn only inward, where the only people they minister to is one another. We can't afford that as a church. The men need older men. The women need older women. The youth and the children need the older saints. I'm not comfortable around youth or children. I'm sorry. I don't get to write you a check to get out of that. Between you and God, it is our job to pass on the truth of who God is to the next generation. And so we're going to have to learn to trust in God to lead us through that. Now we call to the stand Simeon. Spell your name Simeon, tell us who you're from and why you're here. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now we talked about, again, Paul and I talked about on the podcast this last week, like how long ago had the Spirit revealed this? Was it like last week? Like, hey, just so you'll know, I'm going to, next week it's going to be a big week. It doesn't feel that way, does it? It feels like he was given this information decades before and he's been waiting to find out. I get to see the consolations. God is going to bring comfort and soothing to his people and I'm not going to die until I see it. By the way Simeon's name means to hear. This is a man who hears God. He hears from God. He knows the voice of God. That's with the question you go like how did he know? How did he know what to do? How did he know it was the Holy Spirit? How did he know when to go to the temple? How did he know the answer is he listened He listened to the leadership of the Spirit and the Spirit guided him. Verse 27 He came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared for the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Isn't this just amazing imagery? Here you have this young mother. She's in the temple with her husband and her newborn who's a month old. And they, they're coming out. They're on their way out. Everything's been done. It's supposed to be done. And suddenly an old man rushes up to them, grabs the baby out of her arms. Some of you first-time moms are cringing at this. Grabs the baby out of his arms, holds him up in the air, and begins to prophesy to Yahweh in the temple. Speak directly to God in the temple. Maybe he's not an old man. It actually doesn't say. But we kind of connect that to the fact that he's eagerly awaiting death. And he doesn't get to go until this happens. And now he gets to go, he says. What does it mean that he has seen God's salvation? There's no cross. There's no tomb. There's just a baby. It's because the Holy Spirit has revealed to Simeon already that, the, that God's salvation is a person. This is, this is this. He was born a Savior. He does not become one. He as an infant is the way. He is the life. He is the resurrection. Simeon has been longing for his appearance. And by the way, who is this salvation for? Again, first century Israel in the temple. Simeon is calling out before God that this is for the Gentiles. That could have gotten Simeon in trouble probably. We see that played out. By the way, very well done in The Chosen. They show how hard it is for people to accept that there's not something so special about us that we need nothing and the Gentiles have no hope for anything. That's how they saw the world, many of them. And so for him to come in and proclaim this, wow. And the father and the mother, verse 33, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. Older people, bookmark that. We need to be blessing the younger people. We need to speak that blessing over them. That's part of the job of the older people. In the evangelical world, we're so nervous about taking God's place. They we're like, oh, God needs to be blessing them, right? Oh, I don't bless the food. God blesses the food. I mean, unless I do, I think we have the authority with the Holy Spirit that we get to bless each other as well. Obviously, I'm his, my authority comes through him. He's the one doing it. But for me to get to reach out to a younger person and say, I, I bless you. Now, if I'm smart, i bless you in Jesus' name. Or I could even say, God bless you. There's nothing wrong with all that. But let me just encourage you, especially older people, speak up. We need to be blessing the next generation, telling them, encouraging them, challenging them, blessing them. And Simeon, I picture him, I don't know if he did this, laying his hands, he's holding the baby in one arm, he lays his hands on, puts his hand on Mary's head and blesses her, maybe with Joseph as well, and then says to Mary, turns and says to Mary, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. I don't know if he leans in for this part. I've got to imagine he does. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed, exposed. Jesus is and was the stumbling stone. He still is. He will be loved by many and he will be opposed by many. Being loved by Jesus leaves us exposed. We have to expose the fact that we are sinners, sick, fallen, in need of a Savior. That's a vulnerable place. That's the, our hearts have to be revealed. Being loved by Jesus will leave us revealed. Simeon prophesied to Mary that it was going to cost her too. Being Jesus' mother wasn't going to protect her from being revealed and exposed and brokenhearted and run through Loving Jesus will cost you. Now, nothing like what it costs him to love you, but it'll cost us. Simeon was walking. Simeon was waiting, righteous and devout and waiting, listening to the Spirit and waiting for God in a place of worship. I'm going to comment on that again in a second. Now we call to the stand. Anna, spell your name and where you're from and why you're here. Give us your background, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Her name means... God has favored her. She has been favored by God. Now, I want you to hear that her name means God has favored her, and she's been a widow for maybe eight decades. Being favored by God doesn't mean you don't face hardship or heartbreak. It doesn't mean you don't feel alone and isolated and even afraid. It just means you get him, and she has him. She spends all of her time in his temple fasting, praying, singing, connected to him in every way that she possibly can. I've often wondered, imagining somebody whining or complaining about, like, well, she only got to go into the women's section. I think Anna would have, get, would have said, I get to go that close. How fascinating so often we want to demand our rights versus recognize the credible glory of whatever God gives us. that we, don't, we can't appreciate that. By the way, favored by God, she has lived most of her life as a widow, and by most of her life, I mean a long time. Lower end, Anna is in her low 90s. Upper end, her low 100s. She has spent her entire adult life worshiping God day and night, fasting and praying, living as a living Sacrifice. It seems that she walked up in time to experience Simeon's prayer and his blessing over the family. And as a prophetess, she immediately caught on. She embraced the truth of it. The Messiah has come. Now, what does she do? What does this woman in her 90s or maybe 100s immediately begin to do? She transfers from prophetess to evangelist. And now you have this old woman hobbling around the temple telling everyone who would listen, by the way, everyone who's ready for consolation and redemption. Everyone whose heart is open to this, she begins to tell them. How many people? I always, this always happens to me when I'm reading through scriptures like this. Because I think it's originally my intention growing up, my, my perspective growing up, was here's the temple, and in the entire temple, are Mary, Je- Joseph, and Jesus, and Simeon and Anna. And that's it. There's only five people in the whole temple, which of course is not true. There would have been hundreds, maybe thousands of people there. And guess what about all but five of them? They missed it. Wow, how easy does that have? How many wise men were there in the world? But only a handful saw the star and knew what it meant. There's a great picture here. Are we open to the consolation? Are we ready for the redemption? And by the way, being a believer means at the fundamental level, there's a consolation for us that will last forever. There is a redemption for us that has already been purchased, but we also need it ongoing. We need to experience His redemption and His consolation. How many people walked past the Messiah and had no idea? These two were ready to be consoled. They were waiting for redemption. And when they had performed, verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. I love this. They were doing the right thing. This is not some dare-to-be-great opportunity. She was in the temple every day, and guess where she was today? In the temple, like she was every day. Simeon is listening. By the way, Fanuel, just so you know her father's name, means someone with the vision of God or someone who sees God. What two great witnesses, the one who hears and the one who sees Perfect examples of what we're looking for. They were urgent, and yet they were listening. They were probably impatient, but they were waiting. This is who we're dealing with. They were looking for the consolation and the redemption. Our temptation is to get impatient. How do we take urgent and integrate it with healthy as a church? Growth, any growth in a church that happens through a method other than discipleship, through this what's described here, like becoming strong being filled with wisdom. Anything other than discipleship and church growth is a gimmick and it won't last. Anything in church growth that's based on the charisma of a leader or a staff or an elder board or whatever, it will fail. Only through the proper discipleship through God's word, I think, can a church and should a church grow. We're not trying to, to suddenly do something. We want God to grow us, be, that we become strong and filled with wisdom, following after the example of young Jesus. They were, these two were in the right place. I want to do big things, not boring things. But most of what God calls me to is pretty boring. It's pretty normal stuff. Just the small, little, faithful things. The waiting things. And I hate waiting. Waiting faithful with what they knew to do. This next Sunday, this next weekend is going to be D now. And the focus for our young people is going to be, are we walking that walk step by step? All of us want to face Goliath. None of us want to obey our parents. You don't obey your parents. David doesn't obey his father. He never faces Goliath. It's that simple. That is not a theme of Luke. That is a theme of God's word. Ginger shared with me a meme last week said this, religion is a man thinking about fishing while sitting in church. I was left, for a few of you, like, oh, wait, does he say fishing? <laughs> That's what I was thinking about. A relationship is a man fishing while thinking about God. That's clever. It's also a false dichotomy. Those of you who know me are like, who he's going to hate that, right? <laughs> Faithfulness is a person who worships at church, and while fishing, who worships in the community of believers even when he's suffering from discouragement, or she, watching and ready for consolation whether they're fishing or worshiping in the church. Worshiping while fishing or worshiping in the church is still faithfulness, being where God calls us to be, in co- waiting for His consolation, begging for His consolation, seeking and watching for His redemption all the time. I promise you, if you're watching God, you have bad days and God is redeeming the time in little ways that you might not spot. Sometimes in big ways that are really amazing. So that's my challenge. Again, back to the episode of The Chosen we watched last night that struck me that the, the main teaching of Jesus in that moment to his hometown was the people were in huge trouble because they didn't know they needed redemption. They thought they had it all together. Church, we need redemption. We need consolation. Where about you and your life? I don't know. Why don't we stand and we'll engage individually as a community with the Holy Spirit about what we need to hear from that message. What do we need to hear about his redemption is constant. If you've never put your faith in Christ, if you need to say, I need my whole eternity redeemed, I want to be consoled forever, then come forward and let us know. If there's a specific area of your life that you would say, I need prayer for this because I need consolation. I need God to buy something back from me, or I need something bought back for me. Okay, we can do that. Is our focus off? Does our life need to be redeemed? Do we think we have it all together? Because we don't. I don't know what the Holy Spirit, this time is meant to take an extra moment before we rush off into the rest of life and ask, what about this message was for me? What about God's word today hits me? And if you want to come pray, that's great. If you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come and join our imperfect and even dysfunctional family, we would love for you to do that. And we'd love to pray with you as well. If that's, if you've already been through that process, you can do that during this time of invitation.